Um, our next speaker is Reverend Will van der Hart, who, as I say, is an old university friend of mine, who um, then decided that the thing to do was to go into the ministry. So he's, he's been a vicar, a jobbing vicar in a local church, and has dealt with many, many of the pastoral problems that some of you will have faced with. He's, he's been visiting people in prison. He's been involved in Mental Health Act, people who are suicidal, etc. He, he knows his stuff, and he's now, uh, just for the last few months, been working at Holy Trinity Brompton in London as their... It's a, it's a wonderful title, isn't it? Pastoral Chaplain. I see no idea what that means. Um, I think he's still working it out, but don't tell his boss I said so. So um, Will, I'm sure, will say a little bit more about exactly what a pastoral chaplain is. Um, his um, Twitter thing is at Vicar Will, and please do carry on. Don't forget, we're at Mind and Soul, so please do keep mentioning that during the day, but I will hand over to Will. Great, thanks, Rob. Um, before I get into my talk, I just, I'm just conscious. I mean, it's really moving to me being here and seeing you all, because we really care about mental health, and we really care because we really believe God cares. So just seeing all you guys Actually, together we can do this. And I, I, I don't want you to be robbed by fear for the day. I, I know it's really uncomfortable. And I know you might feel like you want to get out of this building really, really quickly. But I know that if you can tolerate this fear just for a, another quarter of an hour, that you'll feel much better and you're much more likely to stay for the day. So if you're here with anxiety, I'm with you. Just squeeze the hand of the person next to you and, like, say, sit with me, encourage me, help me. And we'll do this thing together. If you're here with social phobia and feeling like this is actually your worst nightmare, then I want to say to you too, we see your courage. You know, we, we recognize the challenge. We're not going mad. This is what it is to be human. And actually sitting with this group of people will help you. The most important thing for you is to know that you're amongst friends. We actually love God. We're all broken people. No one's going to humiliate you or embarrass you today. We just want you to feel really safe and really enjoy your time here in this place. And obviously, if you're here with any other mental health condition, I know most of us are, we just want to thank God that we can take our masks off today and just sit together and go, actually, we're quite normal, you know, in our own weird way. It's, it's totally fine. Just look around, you know. No one here is here to judge you or to condemn you or to stigmatize you. Everyone who's here in this room is here because they're passionate about the one in four statistic, which, we're for, if we're honest, is really the one in one statistic. That we all have the challenge of dealing with our minds and our emotions. And actually, many of us are much more alive to that than some of the people in the world out there. But we can do something to help people. And we can do that in our vulnerability and brokenness, not through being superhuman and pretending that we aren't filled with cracks and flaws. So I want you to feel just relief in the house and know that you're amongst friends. And I, I believe in the church. I believe in the church that Jesus founded, the church that was a group of 
people who stood together in love and fellowship in his name. And I, I guess what I'm excited about is seeing a, a large group of those people trying to do that, but actually trying to do that rather than standing there looking great and then going home feeling utterly depressed. So let's try and let that be a theme of our day. I, I, I'm hoping that none of what you hear is going to be too slick and too corporate and too kind of presentational. I'm hoping that you're going to feel it's very human, but infected with the Spirit of God. That actually, you can resonate with the truth of what that really looks like, and therefore you can be transformed and changed by it. At the end of the day, I would hate you to go away from this saying, wow, big conference, flashy speakers, loads of amazing slides, my head is completely bombed with all sorts of information, but I'm completely unchanged. I think we're changed in community, in communion with one another and with God through the person of Jesus. Everything else is it's just window dressing. So, is that all right as an opener? We're we all good with that? Great. Thank you. Great. Well, it's odd, isn't it, in a way. I'm going to start talking about undoing perfectionism. These slides aren't perfect. I'm really thankful as well that we've got signers here today, which is brilliant. My slides aren't very friendly in terms of the font's too small, the background's too messy. I insisted on having Thomas Cole's painting of uh, Arcadia, uh, which is ridiculously academic and unnecessary. Um, so... All I can do is encourage you to kind of forget the slides, but they'll be online for you to read in big print and zoom in and whatever you want to do with them. So don't worry about them too much. <clears throat> They're as much for my help as they are for yours. But I did choose Thomas Cole's painting because it's a painting of utopia. And in a way, aside from God, we've tried so hard to try and, try and create some sort of vision of perfection in our lives. Historically, there have been seasons when people have worked really hard to kind of create utopia, and there are horrific outworkings of that, like uh, the process of eugenics or uh, plans for social cleansing or uh, ethnic uh, and racial divides and segregations, because one person's view of what if perfection is is not God's view of what perfection looks like. God's perfection looks like this. His broken children standing together in love and fellowship. Actually, our desire to demonstrate something that's perfect is a flawed desire. And what makes me feel uncomfortable is that I believe perfectionism as an outlook, as a mental attitude, as a construct of society is prevalent not just out there but also in the heart of this, in here, in the church. It's affecting our lives and it's affecting the reality of our journey in mental and emotional health. And, I, and I've been there. And I continue to wrestle with the reality of that. Many of you know my story of um, becoming a priest here in um, Branson Square, which was where I served my curacy. If you're an Anglican, you'll understand what that means. Everyone else just nod in agreement. <coughs> and I, I remember um, actually preaching a sermon a few days after I'd returned to St. Mary's following my summer holiday. Um, and this was the first time I'd been back. And actually, I think I was actually sitting down there just the third seat along. I remember having a huge rush of adrenaline. And I remember like almost my feet were sort of twitching. I kind of couldn't stop moving. And I thought I was just so pumped about preaching that I was really just, you know, I, the, the spirit was weighing heavily on me in this special day. I didn't realize actually I was close to a panic attack and I was flooded with adrenaline. And, and I went downstairs and had a Coke, which is probably the worst thing <coughs> you could possibly do. 
But I wanted to present right. You know, I wanted to look good. I wanted to be the package. And I got myself into that pickle. Not that it was a pickle that God didn't want me to be part of, but I got myself into that pickle because when the London bombings went off, I, I thought that I needed to present rather than to be incarnate in Christ's self, to be present as a person. I felt that I needed to present as a priest. And I don't wear a dog collar typically unless the bishop's around. So I am... Um, so I remember I ran to my flat and I put on my dog collar and I went under the cordon and I was, I was ready to present. It's just that the projective part of myself was ready to present. My heart wasn't ready to be present. I wasn't ready to be present. I was standing behind something that said I was someone, but the someone I was presenting to be wasn't the person that I really was. So when all of the fear and all of the brokenness and all of the terror of what happened unfolded in my mind, my external couldn't deal with what was happening on my internal. I realized then that I'd become something of a perfectionist. I wonder whether you know what one even is. Wiki, source of all wisdom, says, perfectionism in psychology is a personality trait characterized by a person striving for flawlessness and setting excessively high performance standards accompanied by overly critical self-evaluations and concerns regarding others' evaluations of them. Wow, that sounds terrible. But doesn't it sound great? Doesn't it sound, doesn't it sound like Christian discipleship? Perfectionism. It's a personality trait characterized by a person striving for flawlessness. Seek perfection. Seek excellence in everything you do. It's, it's, a, it's a personality trait marked out by someone setting excessively high performance standards. Jesus, I want to be just like you. It's accompanied by this overcritical self-evaluation. I'm such a worm. As Calvin said, I am such a worm. And I'm terrified of what my vicar thinks of me. Wow, this is weird, isn't it? It sounds almost heretical. But it's part of our experience, isn't it? That actually somehow when we walk through the doors of church, we exchange God's grace for us for our attempts to become something that we are. It's interesting in my experience that leading people to come to faith in Jesus Christ for the first five years their testimony of sinner to saint is really celebrated but it's a testimony about what happened in the past not who they are in the present have you seen those testimonies someone I was a crack addict for 20 years and now I'm completely free Woo! amazing and I will never struggle with addiction in my life ever again We love to hear about people's transformation to perfection as we perceive it. What we don't like is to journey with the broken over the long term. As Rob said this morning, actually we are being transformed. The present continuous tense, which doesn't really add up particularly well in the English language, says that we have been transformed, we are being transformed, and we will be transformed. And it's not that comfortable, is it? not to be perfect, not to be what everyone aspires for you to be. When you're sold a vision of some sort of humanity that just isn't you, 
And what's this mean for you when you struggle with emotional and mental health problems? When society says, not just that you don't even look perfect, but you definitely aren't perfect, you're carrying a label. I don't want to be dehumanized by a label about the function of my brain. Like I don't want to be dehumanized by the dysfunction of my hand or my leg. But that's what I'd be told. That you somehow would never attain to this perfection in Christ. Society makes a mark. And we absorb that within ourselves. What's it really mean? And I want to ask you today, am I a perfectionist? Are you, this is a breakdown of some clinical evaluations, you can do it yourself, it's pretty terrifying, and just to warn anyone here who tries to do this, do it with me. Highly conscious and hypercritical of mistakes. Number two, aim to be the best in everything you do. Number three, you spend unreasonable amounts of time trying to perfect something. Number four, you set absolute ideals. Number five, you are the harshest critic of yourself. Who, who here isn't one of those? Number six, you ruminate over why things didn't turn out as planned. Number seven, you are defensive towards criticism and you fear failure. Number eight, you only have the end goal in mind. Number nine, you have an all or nothing approach. And number ten, you are anxious in any situation that might give others the perception that you are not yourself perfect. Wow, I'm all of those. <laughs> I'm all of those. And yet, I'm not here to say we should be perfectionists. I'm here to tell you something different. And you're wondering what on earth we can be as Christians other than perfectionists. Because I'm thinking, what's the alternative? What do you say? Hi, everyone. I'm not a perfectionist. I'm Mr. Average, and I deal in averageness. <laughs> I quite like mistakes. Uh, flawlessness is not something I aspire to in any way. And excellence I'm not particularly interested in. I'm an anti-perfectionist. It's funny, isn't it? I, I wonder if any of you are involved in recruitment. As a priest over the years, I've been involved in the recruitment of many people. And I've actually applied for different jobs over time too. So, you know, you do the application form. It's brilliant, isn't it? You go through the application form. You fill in all the easy details about all that you are, where you live, and what you've got at GCSE, etc. And then you get to the box that says, um, tell us about your greatest strengths. You're thinking, oh, this is difficult. Because if I say too much, I look a bit arrogant. If I say too little, I look like I haven't got any strengths. So I need to say just enough so I look confident and skilled, but just enough not to look arrogant or conceited. So you, you kind of half fill the box, or a third fill, but with really nice things. Uh, confident, outgoing, care about the detail, will work late, etc., etc. <laughs> then you get to the next box, which is the worst, most terrifying box to fill in on a job application form. It says, tell us about your weaknesses. You're immediately thinking, oh my goodness, how do I fill in this box? If I leave it empty, it looks like I'm terribly arrogant. If I put anything in it, it looks like I'm unemployable. <laughs> so what I need to do is I need to put something in there that looks both bad, but secretly we all know is good. <laughs> I know. I know what I'm going to put in there. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's genius. Fantastic. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Because if I'm a bit of a perfectionist, 
That means I'll work late, I care about the detail, I'm highly committed, you can depend on me. There's nothing bad about that. There's nothing bad about that. You know what's ironic is, as the employer, I've often looked at job descriptions and some of them have had that in the box. And I thought, oh, that's quite good. You should come and work for the church. <laughs> Long hours, bad pay, no perks, on the same wage for the le- rest of your earthly life. You'd be brilliant. Bit of a perfectionist, fantastic. We don't deal with mistakes here. Everything is perfect. Everything is just so. There's no grace for you, only for people who come through the doors at the front. What I want to say to you all is that this is funny, but it's important. It's it's actually at the heart of what we're trying to do today, because perfectionism is anti-grace. And we are agents of grace in the name of Jesus. You are an agent of grace. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about you being here specifically is because you know what it is to suffer in the body or in the mind. Because you have compassion on those who suffer. You can be an agent of grace and you can be anti-stigma. You can be anti-perfectionism. You can allow people to really live. I see Jesus surrounding himself with people who are broken and hurting in mind and body and spirit. Not judging them or condemning them, but blessing them and encouraging them and enabling them to live. Thinking, wow, imagine releasing from this place today 700 agents of grace into the world of mental and emotional health. But we cannot be released unless we change our own minds about perfectionism. Annie Wilson Schaaf said that perfectionism is self abuse of the highest order. This is me, if we just go on to that next slide, an attempt to change your mind about perfectionism. You see, we think that perfectionism is a little ill, like it's a little small ill. It's not a really big problem, but it's a great big evil in our churches and in our societies and in our own minds. It's self-abuse of the highest order. In, in every, nearly every neurotic disorder that I've worked with over the last seven or eight years, there's been a component which is perfectionistic. There's a component that says, actually, I have to be perfect. I have to overcome this. I have to present perfectly. And that nagging, that horrific, that abusive internal narrative in the mind is deconstructing the person all the time. It's abusive. It's, it's repressive. It's, 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 it, it, it denies the self. It denies the human. And it denies God's grace in your own life. It's self-abuse of the highest order. It's anti-grace. You see, the thing that I see about the Gospels is that Christ's perfection is what we need. It's that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It's not that the script was flipped and that Jesus was a moral model, that he was perfect And now who's going to show us what we needed to do to get the grace of God by living perfect lives. And when we mean perfect lives, we mean doing everything right. You see, our theological understanding is miscued, which is why this is such a problem for Christians specifically. And we'll come on to that later. But I want to 
argue that if we retain the faulty belief that perfectionism is virtuous, we will be suffocated by its accusations and demands for the whole of our lives. You see, we can say, no, I, I, I've been to this seminar at Mind and Soul Conference, and Will said perfectionism is really bad. You know what? I agree with him. Just this little bit of my life, though, I just, just in, in this bit, it's okay. In this little area, it's okay. Or in this little area, you know, just a little bit of perfectionism is quite a good or healthy thing. If we don't completely change our minds about this, then we're always going to be suffocated. Forbes magazine, which I like to read every so often, says that perfectionism is problematic because it can lead to obsessiveness, inefficiency, and a multitude of serious mental health issues that affect attendance, performance, and morale. You'll often see a perfectionist procrastinate because she's, she's afraid of failing before she starts. Alternatively, she may position herself as the martyr, the only one who cares or thinks or works enough about getting things right. Now, Forbes is a business magazine for business leaders, and you would think that in the business world, business leaders would be saying, we love to employ perfectionists. But the business world is saying, actually, perfectionists are bad for business. This isn't the way forward, and this is, if you like, an entry point to the sort of neuroticism that cripples the church. I, I, I try and motivate volunteers in my church. It's a church of 10,000 people. I cannot tell you how hard it is to mobilize volunteers in a church today, in every church. You know why? Not because people are unwilling to serve the Lord, because people feel too bad to serve the Lord. Christian people, Christians who've been Christians for five years or ten years, they say, oh, I just, I'm just one of those people who say through the flames, you know, the kind of last minute people. I'm just not perfect. I'm not worth it. I'm not good enough. I know I'm forgiven, but I'm just not good enough to serve the Lord. Is that the message that we've been giving to people? And then for those who struggle with emotional and mental health issues, how are they going to play? How are they going to join in? Sorry, sorry, we, you've got some emotional issues. You know, we need to pray those out of you. And we, we, we will deliver you from those. And once we've delivered you, we'll give you a five-year period of, you know, waiting for your time, just observing, just being sure that you're safe and sound. And then, and then maybe after that you can join the coffee rotor. <laughs> Thing is, I love the church. But I love the church because it's the place where humans can be human. Where actually we demonstrate what it is to be human and receive the grace of God which brings us transformation. You see, Paul never says that we sin all the more so that grace might abound. He says we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. We determine to live, if you like, in the body, in line with the things of the Spirit. We make those choices. That's Christian discipleship. Well, we are not called to dance around in masks, pretending that we don't need the grace of God. There are three components to perfectionism. There's the sociological and cultural influence, including parenting. There's the cognitive dispositional thinking bias or the emotional style. And there's the spiritual or theological distortion or the spiritual battle. And you see this little diagram of the perfectionist scale. <coughs> good, very good, excellent. And the last one says perfectionist. You see, the thing about perfectionism is it's got nothing to do with excellence. When people say to me, Will, I love this stuff on perfectionism, but you know, what's the alternative? What do, I, what do I say I'm into? You know, 
I'm into rubbish. What do I say? How do I, how do, I do this? The thing is, perfectionism has nothing to do with attaining to the good. Because there is never, ever a point when the perfectionist will believe that they'd ever attain to the good. It's never good enough. So it's got nothing to do with good. There's never, ever a point in the perfectionist's mind when it's enough, when it's good enough, when it's perfect enough, when the model has been fulfilled, when the destination has been completed, when the journey has ended. There's never a point. Now, I've worked with quite a number of perfectionists, including myself. <coughs> I, could, I, could, um, I could preach my best sermon ever, and I really care about sermons. I could deliver my best talk ever. I could get lots of feedback. I could filter that feedback through my perfectionistic brain. It would not matter whether I received 1,000 emails, which has never happened before, just to be absolutely clear. <laughs> 1,000 emails celebrating the finer points of my exegesis of the text. If I received just one letter of criticism, I would spend hours wandering back through the text again, making sure that I was right or wondering whether my interpretation of the Greek was accurate and working out the bilinear dictionary to try and work out whether there's some other way of interpreting the text that would have made me right. It's got nothing to do with the good. It's got everything to do with everything that's going on in my mind that says you aren't good enough and you never will be good enough. The church is not built to run on fear. Jesus didn't say, all be worms. Gather together and be worms. Serve me all like worms. Never feeling justified by grace. Never receiving the good things of the kingdom. Never singing songs of joy. Just be worms. But try and look good whilst you're being worms. <laughs> These three aspects, the sociological, cultural influences and parenting style are really important. People say, well, Will, why, how did I become a perfectionist? And there is something we call trait induction, where a child maybe has particular tendencies towards perfectionistic behavior, but also they receive through their own setting, uh, pushing towards perfectionistic outcomes. And guilt-inducing parenting styles can be one of these, where children actually find themselves working really hard towards getting the right answer because their living situation feels unsafe. I am... Um, was interviewing people for Rob and I's new book, The Guilt Book, and I was talking about guilt induction parenting, where parents get their children to organize their feelings rather than the parent organizing the feelings of the child. So the parent says, you're making mummy sad, stop making a noise, or you're making mummy annoyed, stop being a little boy. Um, and I, I talked to one woman I was interviewing, <coughs> this particular woman, I said, you know, do you understand what I mean by trait induction parenting styles? She said, oh, yeah, I do. She said, when I was a kid, I, I would be doing little things, like I would sit at the table, for example, and I'd, maybe I'd be kicking my legs up in an annoying way, making a noise, and my mum would say, don't do that. You're only doing that because you want mummy to die. <laughs> you only want mummy to die? You're only doing that because you want mummy to die? She said, yeah, she used to say it all the time. I said, what did you do? She said, what do you think you would do if you thought your mum was going to die because you were kicking your legs up against the bottom of the chair? You'd stop. 
Now, for many people, guilt induction parenting has led them to be perfectionists because within their own spirit is this sense that you will never be good enough unless you behave like a good little boy or a good little girl. And you know what? That's been projected onto God. And so God is somehow saying, you will never receive the goods of eternal life. You will never receive the joy of the Christian life unless you're a good little boy or a good little girl. That resonates in the superego of that, of that adult. That, that resonates with the inner child, if you like, if we're going to use some analytical outlooks. And, and therefore, we're deactivated by those motifs and we find ourselves looking for approval again and again and again to say, no, you're okay, you've done enough. There's emotional withdrawal, unsafe environment, lack of affirmation, marital conflict, judgmental parenting, early criticism, frustration, anger, poor listening, social isolation, perfection and, and perfectionism as an affirmed positive all play a part in the way in which we develop perfectionistic tendencies. But friends, these aren't little ills. These are major challenges to our emotional health and to our spiritual well-being. And what about culture? What's culture done? This is... Um, this next slide you'll see um, is Cheryl Cole. It's not a very good slide. Let me uh, demonstrate it to you. Glamour magazine, I'll just be clear, I don't read Glamour magazine, <coughs> just to be sure. I don't know where I got this from, but it wasn't that I was reading it and I cut it out. <laughs> uh, it says, um, expectations of physical perfection are at an all-time high. Oddly, as women have got more culturally liberated, we'd also got crazier about our bodies. Americans, mostly women, spent more than 13 billion on plastic surgery in 2007. 10 million US girls a year have eating disorders. 13 billion dollars on plastic surgery. But the same magazine that critiques that reality publishes tools like this one. So this is Cheryl Cole's face. But it's not just Cheryl Cole's face because the critique is brought through the column on the right-hand side. And I think it's Cheryl Cole's hair, and then it's Kylie's forehead, Cheryl Cole's own eyes, actually, uh, Angelina Jolie's lips, um, Katie Price's cheekbones, and someone else. There's at least five people in there, anyway, that make up her face. And what they're saying is, wouldn't Cheryl Cole be more beautiful if she had all these perfect attributes from other beautiful women? Let's dissect her face and let's slide in. Do you remember these books as a kid you used to have? I used to have those with the mystery eyes and then the funny hat, and the odd lips and the moustache. You can make all sorts of brilliant faces with them. They're doing this to Cheryl Cole. I mean, I, you know, she might not be everyone's cup of tea, but I think she's quite attractive. But more importantly, what a disgrace. What a disgrace that we would dissect someone's face that we would suggest that actually there was a more amorphous and more perfect vision of them. Isn't it incredible? But these are, the, these are what young people are going, this is what young people are going through. When they're coming into our churches and into our ministries, this is what they're seeing as normal. That actually not only are they broken inside, they're broken outside. That they're never enough. It's never enough. It's never good enough. It's anti-grace. And then we can use perfectionism as a sort of safety behavior, if you like, a way of staving off the pain of life, of, of punishing ourselves, but also somehow managing the problem. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what my own safety behaviors are. But what I've realized is that safety behaviors appear to help you to float, 
but actually they help you to die. If you want to learn how to swim, what do you need to be able to do? There's lots of technical swimmers down the front here. That wasn't what I was thinking. <laughs> what I was thinking was, to be able to swim, you actually have to be able to drown. To be able to swim, you actually have to be able to drown. Because in any other setting, you wouldn't actually be swimming. You know, if, if I've got a big paddling pool down the front here, and I said, okay, let's all learn to swim. Who's actually going to be swimming? Apart from like a little pixie. No, nobody. Because it's just too shallow. Or what about if I put a life vest on you, and then I chucked you into a swimming pool? Would you be able to swim then? No. You'd be able to float, but you wouldn't be able to swim. You can only learn to swim when you can learn to drown. I've got two small children, and I'm teaching them to swim right now. My daughter gets it. My son doesn't get it, but he thinks that he can do what my daughter can do. And that is terrifying in a public swimming pool. <laughs> and he believes that he can swim, therefore he throws himself into the deep end regularly, and I have to jump in regularly into the deep end. But it's like father, like son, because when I was a child, I went swimming in my next-door neighbor's swimming pool, and, and I swam with my mum and dad, and then I got out of the pool, and whilst I was getting dressed, I saw the opportunity to turn around and run headlong back into the swimming pool in my clothes. Because I believed I could swim. But of course, I began to drown, and my dad, in all his clothes, dived in after me and rescued me. So the cycle of life continues on and on and on. <laughs> the key thing is that safety behaviors are a bit like a life vest. They keep us afloat, but they don't help us to live. In fact, over time, they help us to die. And perfectionism is one of those greatest life rings. It's one of those greatest life vests. Being a perfectionist appears to help us to function well in society. We're looking good. We're doing well. Oh, yeah, my depression's under control. You prayed for me for six months. I'm totally humiliated and embarrassed about coming up to the front again. So now I'm just well, according to everyone here. <laughs> apart from at home when I'm not really well, but you don't need to know about that. The reality is that we fear failure. We fear the critique of people who see us as not being perfect. But for a while in ministry, I wasn't very popular. I'm not suggesting that I am now, but at the time, I, I, I wasn't particularly popular. Because people started saying to me, other priests started saying to me, you know, you've got to be really careful about that mental health thing you started talking about. Because people think you're a bit mental. <laughs> well, I am a bit mental. It's, um, it was, someone said to me, you know, well, if you, if you do too much in this area, people will label you the mental priest. <laughs> but I am a mental priest. <laughs> anyway, we can have lots of fun uh, with that whole thing. People don't like it. People don't like a broken model. When I had, you know, nine panic attacks a night and felt like death, People didn't like it. People didn't like it because it wasn't a really good model. They wanted to put the cross between me and panic, which I, I welcomed. But it wasn't what I needed. What I needed was the presence of Jesus right there. Now, when, when I was falling apart the seams, it wasn't very popular. Best to go and leave for a little while. Be quiet about it and come back when you're looking better. But Jesus doesn't say, go away and come back to me when you're well. He says, to come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, if you're broken, if you're wounded, if you're hurting, come and see me. Spend time with me. It's great, isn't it, that he says that? Perfectionism says, meh, come back when you're better. 
come back when you're looking good. And we can use that in ourselves. We can procrastinate. We can be self-critical. We can become anxious and depressed again, lose confidence, and then gain a greater fear of failure and then find a new habit of perfectionism. And we need to understand this from a Christian reference point. Because sometimes in churches, people preach perfectionism. And that's difficult for Christians. Sometimes people say to me, Will, but in the Bible it says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. You can't read these slides, so don't try and even look at them. (laughs) Just because you can't read them doesn't mean you're not perfect. It's okay. Please no one have an eye test during the lunch break. It's unnecessary. It's the slides. It's definitely not you. If you quote Matthew 5, 48 to someone, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, out of context, what do you think that means in a culture that's perfectionistic? That means you need to behave perfectly. You need to be a perfect person, not just a perfect person, but you need to be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. Hands up, Williams fulfilled that one recently? No, I didn't think so. Isn't it ironic that this one passage comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is possibly or arguably the greatest piece of grace-filled teaching that has ever been spoken on planet Earth. It's the greatest piece of God's grace. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed basically are all the broken people. But, just at the end of it, I thought I'd better throw in a bit of a curveball, says Jesus. I know I've blessed all the broken and poor and weak and lost people, but just now, I just want to say at the end, but you have to be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. How's that work? That actually, we receive the gift of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and then suddenly, the most legalistic piece of teaching that's ever been delivered on planet Earth follows it up. How, how, is that even, how is that even interpreted so? How could that even be the case? Which is important to understand in terms of we don't take Matthew 5, 48 out of context. Remember, this has got nothing to do with holiness or godliness or even excellence. This has got to do with perfectionism. Matthew 5, 48 uses a Greek word called teleoil. And teleoil says you find your completeness in God. And so, a much better translation is the Weymouth New Testament that says, you, however, are to be complete in goodness as your heavenly Father is complete. You see, you find your completeness in God. Your perfection is not found in yourself. Your perfection is found in God who created you. So, Jesus is actually saying, find your completeness Find your all in all in who God is. You're filled with holes. You're filled with deficiency. But you need to find completeness in God. You are made perfect, not in your own strength, not in your own goodness, not in your own righteousness, but in the fact that Christ died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. It's great news. It's news of completeness. And therefore, if priests, etc., or leaders from the front say, oh, guys, you know, you need to be a bit more perfectionistic about life, you're getting it wrong right now. We're actually saying, we don't care about the cross. We don't care that Christ died. It's got no efficacy for us, because actually we just need to be perfect in our own self, for our own sake, 
in order that God would look kindly on us and hopefully we'll get into heaven. Jesus has said that he's died for us in order that we might be made perfect in him. But it's in him. If you want to flip the script, it's saying we are imperfect, which we all know, which means we are incomplete without Christ. People talk about having a God-shaped hole. That means that they're incomplete. Or if they're a product, they'd be imperfect because there's something that's missing. So the sort of perfect that you see from the teleo word is the sort of completion that comes when you had a hole in your heart and then Christ went and dwelled in there. Then you found your completeness. That's what perfection looks like. That's the sort of perfection that God's talking about. But it's not perfectionism. It's completeness in him. You see another word used. These two words are used in the New Testament for perfection. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort, of one mind. Live in peace and the God of love and the peace shall be with you. That's the King James Version. This is from 2 Corinthians 13, 11. It's, not, it's a one-liner, isn't it? Be perfect. Can you imagine Paul saying that to the church in Corinth? In, you know, he's been writing to them, hasn't he, about all sorts of crazy sexual issues. You know, he's been sorting them out because they've been off the charts in all sorts of areas. It's a funny one-liner to leave them with, isn't it? Guys, I know you're an absolute mess. You know, it's all been hanging out for far too long over there in Corinth. I just want to let you know, just at the end of the day, could you just be perfect? That would be really helpful. I won't have to write you any more letters. We can all get on with our life. In the NRSV, there's a much more accurate translation of this word, which is... Um, is saying, which says, finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, the reference to putting things in order is, again, a reference to finding completeness. Find wholeness in your relationships. Find a kind of pattern of, of order in all of this. It's a, f a phrase reference to completeness. I was talking to a lawyer about this recently. He said, actually, in British law, there's a term very much like the Talio word. And actually, we talk about perfecting contracts. It doesn't mean like the paper is so crisp. There are no ink smudges. The staple is at 45 degrees to the corner. This is a perfect contract. It means it's a complete contract that contains everything necessary to adhere to the rules of the law. Friends, you have... A complete contract with Christ. You have found completeness in Christ if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you welcome Christ into your heart, you're not a perfect person. You're not perfectly virtuous, but you're made perfect because you've been made complete because your union in, in Christ expunges your sin, delivers from you from evil, and guarantees your life in eternity. In Hebrews 7, 11, you see this. It says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? The Bible answers itself. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, why is there any need for Christ? If you could have attained perfection through your own goodness, why is there any need for Christ? You see, perfectionism isn't just a a social aspect. It's not just an internal uh, aspect of ourselves and our parenting. Perfectionism is actually a spiritual aspect. Perfectionism is anti-grace and it's anti-God. It's not something we can entertain anymore in the church. 
This is a sculpture by a friend of mine called Charlie Mackesy, who's been um, depicting the prodigal son over many years now in different ways. And I, I actually modelled for him. I'm going to be very careful about this. I modelled the hand, just the hand. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a torso or anything like this. It's just the hand. But I was in this garden. We were talking about grace. And, and I was standing, he said, could just, he's doing a new one for the Met in New York. So you could just stand there and, you know, could you just put your hand like that? And I'd stand there for quite a long time, actually. It's not that glamorous modelling, I've got to tell you. Um, not that I know much about it, but I just, just that one instance about the hand. Um, you know, what I noticed about it, because he showed me how, how I had to stand, was it was the embrace of the father, but it was the limpness in the son that he depicts so well. There's no counter-embrace. There's no, like, hug back. It's just an embrace against something that is limp and broken. But something about this union is absolutely complete. It's absolutely perfect. And I want you to know, in faith, that actually as someone who struggles with an emotional and mental health issue here today, as someone who is uh, walking with those who do, they are not imperfect if they know Christ. They're not incomplete if they know Christ. Their mental health problem is not some deficiency that they carry that somehow makes them subhuman. No. They are more perfect than anyone who knows not Christ because they have found perfection in Christ. They have found completion in Christ. That's a spiritual reality that makes an emotional and psychological change. It's a powerful one, isn't it? But it takes a long time to get our heads around because... You know, we go back to work on Monday, we're thinking, I've got to get everything right. There's no grace for me. I'm not complete here. How do we recover then? Well, perception. The first thing is, what do we really think about perfectionism? If you still think perfectionism is good, you've got a problem. Change your mind about perfectionism. Don't worry if your phone rings. That is not a mistake. <laughs> I can absorb that. I can take that on board. We don't need to be embarrassed here. We have all done it. Purpose. Now, what am I really trying to achieve through my perfectionism? Am I spending my time trying to make people affirm me or approve of me? Or am I actually just living free? Have you ever thought what it would be like just to be you? It's dangerous, isn't it? Have you ever thought it would be so funny just to have a day when you decide just to be you? How many friends would you lose? You know, how many jobs <laughs> might you lose? Maybe take today as an experiment. What's the projection? What am I feeling inside, but what am I pushing outside? Am I thinking, oh, mum really never approved of me. Mum really never accepted me. I, I, I just need to get that approval. I need to get that acceptance. I need to find that somewhere else in something else. And what about performance? Who am I seeking to please through perfection? Who at the end of the day is going to say, oh, well done. You've done great. You've done it perfectly. Your mind is never going to accept that. Who are you hoping will say it to you? And sometimes there's real concrete things to do. Sometimes there are people who need to be spoken to. Dad, you know what? I've spent my whole life trying to jump over this bar that you've put up. I've decided to give up today. But I just thought I'd tell you. It'd be great if you just told me you liked some of the things that I do. You know? Could, do you think you might be able to do that? How can we change the script of our conversation? How can we move forward? You see, the idea of perfection is so imperfect. We have to own that as people work in this particular arena. Otherwise, we will be filled with judgment 
on ourselves and on the people we love rather than being agents of grace and transformation. So you can take these steps to change. Increase your self-awareness. Reduce your stress. Stress seems to propagate perfectionistic outlooks. Make new appraisals of your behavior and your thoughts. Modify your behavior. You're not, remember, you're not seeking rubbish. You're seeking to do a good job. You're seeking to be good enough. Be compassionate to yourself as Christ is compassionate to you. Pray at moments when you're tempted to lean into perfectionism and tolerate the discomfort of not always getting it right. So actually, that is okay. That is enough. I'm going to pray, and then uh, we are going to hand back to Rob. We've got some questions. One question, two questions. After the prayer, let's pray. Jesus, we say that we know that you are not into perfectionism. We know that instead you are perfect. You are the only human. You are God made man. You are the only one without sin. You were the only perfect one. And because of your perfection, us with all of our brokenness and all of our fragility and all of our needs can find completion and perfection in you and you alone. And we want to break the idol of perfectionism in our lives and say, Jesus, we are going to live authentically today. And we're going to let you shine through all the cracks and all the flaws and all of the issues that we carry. And we pray today that you might be an agent of grace to us and through us. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Will. Okay, we have got some time for questions. There is a microphone running around downstairs and a microphone running around upstairs. Now, there are two rules for questions. We will not shoot you if you break them because it's not about perfection. However, we would advise, please don't give us too much personal information if that makes sense. I mean, tell a bit of story if you want to, but you know, please keep it fairly short. And the other thing, as I say, please try and keep it short and simple from that point of view. So yeah, there's a handout just down there. Well, I'm a perfectionist, and uh, the problem's getting worse and not better. And uh, I'm asking myself, what's the opposite of perfection? And for me, the opposite is complacency. And for me, complacency is a dirty word, and it's a, a word that's getting dirtier as, as, as time goes by. And I'm just wondering, in my mind, it seems, you know, taking your message on board, that maybe it's a good idea to, to steer a middle path, uh, some kind of middle path between perfectionism and complacency, and uh, I'd like some advice on how to do that, please. Thank you. Uh, so m my suggestion to you is that actually you should not be looking for opposites in perfectionism. But actually perfectionism doesn't have opposites. So by saying that complacency is the opposite of perfectionism, what we've done is we've given perfectionism value and said actually it's, a, it's an attainable position. What we need to do is actually change our minds about perfectionism without trying to find an alternative. What we're talking about here is compassionate self-talk. It says, actually, you don't have to be complacent if you're not a perfectionist. There are a number of people here who aren't perfectionists, yet they aren't complacent. It's possible to be highly productive and not a perfectionist. As Forbes has said, actually, we don't want to recruit perfectionists. We want to, we want to recruit people who care about 
excellence and, and good levels of performance and engagement. So actually, what we're asking is what's the motivation for you to do well in life? If the motivation is to find perfection and therefore receive affirmation, and the opposite of that is to be complacent and therefore to receive criticism, the work that you need to do is in asking why that is motivating you to move forward. Until you undo the motivation for perfectionism, you really can't deal with perfectionism. So the thing to do is to work with someone to work out what's at the root of your perfectionism and then to begin to deconstruct that, but not to look at trying to steer a course between perfectionism and complacency as if they're alternatives. What we're saying is it's possible to live excellently, fully engaged, fully dynamic, fully committed, filled with energy, filled with determination, but you're not motivated to receive the end game because that fulfills a need in you. You're just doing it because you want to. So one of the key questions here is, why do I want to do this? Why do I want to do this? Do I want to do it because it's a good thing to do? Or do I want to do it because something compels me to get it all absolutely right? If you are one of those people who, on a Saturday, cannot stop working because the voice in your head says you have not done it right, you cannot stop now, you need to be complete right now, you need to finish this right now, you struggle with perfectionism. If you can go to work on Monday morning and say, you know what, I finished work late on Friday, I did a good job, but I didn't have enough time to finish this project, therefore I'm starting again today and I feel great about it. If you can do that, you know that you're not struggling with that inner compulsion to complete everything over time. So ask yourself, what is at the root of this? What is the voice in this? Some of you would do well to work with some of our therapists, you know, recommend them on my website, to say, actually, I'm struggling with perfectionism. It's undoing me. I need to know what's fueling it. For many people, there'll be a strong fuel behind it, which means that they find it very difficult to put it down, and they still see it as a strong either-or in this area. Great. I think there was a lady just, yeah, just, just here at the front. Microphone coming to you. And then we'll take one from the balcony. You have a hand in the balcony. Yeah, someone just there, I think. Okay, yeah. Um, more than um, 10 years ago, I suffered from postnatal post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, I got better. I wrote a book called The Unhealing of the Cesarean, and then I did a degree in trauma. For, for many years, I battled to present the need in many churches where I come from, in Surrey, uh, the need of training people within the church and create a safe place for women, especially moms and toddlers groups, for women to be free to talk about their postnatal illnesses. There are many, not only PTSD. And uh, recently, I approached one of the churches and they said, um, that's, I was expecting that, that those kind of people are not in this church. I had, for many years after I wrote my book, I had this kind of rejection in every place I've been. So I have never been successful in opening a healing clinic for women with postnatal issues. Will, do you, want to, do you want to comment on that then? Yeah, well, is that okay? hearing your perfectionism, mm -hmm. I believe that it's based, the culture in the churches is based in perfectionism. Could you please explain sure. it more? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to be careful about today. That one, of the ten, one of the things we work towards is always being, we want to build the church. And, you know, I know I'm quite cheeky sometimes about some of the things I say, but they're said in love as a priest. And I think what we need to do is we need to acknowledge that when we talk about the church with a capital, the church, you know, it, it's easy to make 
quite big generalizations, but equally we need to be authentic and realistic about the cultures that we come across. I actually ran in St. Peter's Harrow, and some people from St. Peter's Harrow here, um, a clinic called The Baby Way with my wife. We ran it for about five years, which was a, which was a clinic with, with, um, with uh, a weighing service through the medical practice that we partnership with, and we did a lot of teaching into postnatal illness, including postnatal depression. It's a really successful project, but what we noticed was that actually there was a small number of pregnant women in every church, and um, so a smaller number maybe struggle with postnatal illness. And some churches are reluctant to get involved in what they see as mean niche ministries. Now, as a church leader, I can, I can sympathize with the sense that every leader has got a purse so big and has to cut his cloth in so many ways. I cannot sympathize with the sentiment that there are no, that, that actually there has to be a massive group of people to benefit from a ministry, because actually Jesus talks to every one of us individually. I think one of the key pieces of work we need to do is recognize that when we have a passion for a ministry, is we have to work out the conversation we can have with the church to facilitate that. I think, I, not just yourself, but a number of people face multiple rejections from churches when they've tried to establish a ministry that they're passionate about in this area of emotional mental health. Now, I think in response, one of the things we need to do is to collaborate more as an organization, that actually we want your collaboration, and we'd love to hear more about your own ministries, and to give them, you know, we have an opportunity where people can write articles on our site, uh, we have about a million and a half clicks a year, so there's quite a lot of people see those, that can give more credibility and connection, build relationship, and therefore, we want these things to open up, but also we want to be supportive of the church, in terms of saying, look, I recognize that you can't develop this sort of ministry, but within this broader group, I'm going to facilitate this course in my home, and we'd love to invite your, you know, two or three people from each of these churches together to get a bigger group to do that. So I think the, the, two, the two points are, we will face opposition directly around emotional mental health per se, because there's stigma attached, and there is a cultural perfectionism that says that actually we don't really want to necessarily bring these things to light, but equally we have to be aware of being, not being too niche. Uh, and being supportive of the ministries of the church so we can actually, over time, build apart. Now, at my church, just as a brief example, we run uh, post-abortion healing course, we run uh, divorce separation recovery, a depression course, a well course for survivors of sexual abuse, a um, course for those people who are waiting for children to struggle with fertility issues, a counselling service, and I think there's nine of them in my remit. All of them are quite niche, but they all meet a significant need. So it would be remiss of me not to mention that there are, I know that's just one example, but there are churches here, many of you represent churches, which are doing this work. So we want to expand, be supportive, but also respond to stigmatizing culture. Okay, okay maybe get a microphone to someone up in the balcony, and while the microphone's wending its way, put a hand up, anyone up there with a question? Okay, we'll get one from down here somewhere then. Any questions down here? Yeah, gentlemen, just, just here in the middle row. Um, just while you're saying that, I think, you know, sometimes people have been hurt by the church, and I guess the, the tip I would sort of say is it's very difficult to be cross with the church, because the church is an institution that doesn't really exist. What, what happens is people have been hurt by people, usually, and I think there's a lot of people who say, the church helped me, and that makes it very, very difficult to forgive the church, because you can't do that, and you can't move on, and you get stuck um, in that place. So I suppose it's, if you have been hurt, first of all, a massive apology 
and I know God wishes to apologize for people who've done things in his name as well, but also to sort of say, please try and be specific about the hurt and look for a different expression of God's church where perhaps that won't happen. Okay, question there. talk. During it, you mentioned um, at one point about being present and another point about self-compassion. I guess those are the two main ingredients of what's called mindfulness. Have you anything to say about mindfulness? Well, we could start another seminar uh, right now, but I haven't got time. Um, listen, this is a hot topic at the moment. It's in all of the magazines, no doubt Glamour magazine has got a feature on it this month. Um, but um, there's a lot, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of questions here that can be answered actually on the website because we've got a huge amount of mindfulness material. What we would say to you all is, not to be afraid of mindfulness. Firstly, to recognise that self-consciousness is a God-given gift to all peoples, and actually Christians have been contemplating mindfully for millennia, not just for centuries. If you read about the Desert Fathers, they did all sorts of weird things, including standing on poles in the desert for up to 300 days at a time. Uh, I don't know how they got food and water. I think someone hoisted it up to them. And some others of them sat in caves. This isn't mindfulness, by the way, just so in case you, I don't want to turn you off to it. <laughs> um, but they practiced mindfulness uh, with what we call Christian contemplation. And Christian contemplation is about being present in the moment to ourselves and to God. Mindfulness has, well, the traditional mindfulness that you hear about often has its roots in Buddhist thought, rather than in Christian thought. But both of these traditions are relatively similar in terms of what's actually being asked of a person. Therefore, it's more Zen and popular to talk about mindfulness with its Buddhist connotations in Western society than it is to start talking about the Desert Fathers and Christian contemplation in Western society, not strangely at all. So the NHS has done a lot of work in translating mindfulness approaches into clinical therapies. And so now what you have is what's called third wave CBT. And lots of that's mindful-based CBT. The statistical outworkings of mindfulness therapies are, are very, very optimistic and positive. And we've seen really encouraging results from people who struggled with really chronic episodes of different disorders, particularly in depression, some in anxiety, and some in issues of rage and anger management. So mindfulness can be very positive and helpful, but like all different therapies, key questions to ask is, what is the emphasis of this therapy? Is this therapy purely clinical? Does it come through NHS channels? Is it actually religious? As in, is it coming through Buddhist channels? Is it very Christian? Is it coming through Christian channels? What, what practitioner is involved? How can I understand what this actually is? And how can I access good treatment that's supportive, not any treatment just because it carries a label? I would say that there are multiple types of mindfulness therapies available at the moment. Not all of them are good for you, but some of them probably would be good for you. Uh, there's a very good book called The Book of Sparks, which a friend of mine, mine called Sean Lambert's written about mindfulness therapies and Christian spirituality. And there's also a new website called Christian Mindfulness by an excellent um, practitioner who is um, bringing material into the Christian world on this issue. So we recommend investigation, and there's articles on our site that are supportive and explain more in detail. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. If you want, oh, I'm competing with the uh, emergency services. If you want links to all of these things that Will's just mentioned, like Richard's new course, Sean's book, 
10 or so articles about mindfulness, one of which charts the history of, of mindfulness and Christian contemplation in, in, in the Bible and in church history, go to mindandsoul.info forward slash mindfulness. Mindfulness has one L forward slash mindfulness, and you'll find lots more on there. We're going to close our morning session there. Let's give a big round of applause to Will if we can again.